Hello and welcome to the Rationable Podcast, your weekly deep dive into how science and critical thinking make you immune to scams, fads and hoaxes. I'm your host, Abhijit. Let's dig in. Uh, Anand, could you, uh, once, just once again, for uh, our viewers, just in case things get trimmed off at the beginning because of the technical hassles, if you could just give us another quick introduction uh, to who you are and what you do. So hi everyone, my name is Anand Bhan. I'm a physician by training. I'm based out of Bhopal and I work as a researcher in global health, bioethics and health policy. Nice to be joining here. I'm so glad to have you on. Uh, Dr. Sheikh, we of course have you have had you on as well uh, earlier for a lot of uh, other, you know, uh, talking about other topics and more of your profession and how you started uh, Alt News Science. Um, but for those who are going to be joining us and seeing you for the first time on this channel, we'd love an, a little background on who you are and what you do as well. Sure. Um, so my name is Samaya Sheikh. I am uh, based in Sweden uh, in uh, this really small town called Linköping. Uh, it's a teaching hospital. Um, I am a researcher here, uh, primarily a medical scientist by training, a neuroscientist in particular. majority of my research is based on physiology and now psychiatry. A large part of it is actually about human behavior um, and violence in particular. I started Alt News uh, Science on the Alt News platform. Um, it's a portal for fast living in India. The, the very early on, um, three years ago, and uh, at that point, uh, I did not realize that um, three years later or four years later, we'd be having this conversation about letting people who have no training in um, evidence-based science. Um, allowing them to do surgery. So um, this is very unfortunate that uh, such a long time, um, we, you know, it's, it's even getting worse uh, to what we started off before. Uh, my primary idea to start off all these science was um, before a, a lot of these alternative medicines in India, I, I've been following this. Uh, the stories for over 10 years. I've been yeah. researching um, uh, alternative therapies for a really long time, not researching in my lab, but following up on papers and the research that comes out. I did uh, do one of my summer projects uh, with an alternative researcher in breast cancer, and I understood how data was collected and how data was analyzed, and I had deep doubts about how these therapies were working. So I really started to begin to what the science was all about. Um, so I, I found um, all science because the uh, uh, previously, um, the ministry did not exist uh, as uh, what we call Ayush in India. Um, and mm -hmm. before there were these, these, these centers of um, homeopathy and centers of Ayurveda, and then that got consolidated um, in 2015, late 2014, uh, early 2015, it got consolidated into its own, its, its own ministry, uh, which is parallel to uh, the main Ministry of Health uh, Welfare, uh, family, Health and Family Welfare. So it's a parallel ministry in, in the first time in its um, in the world, and the, the only country that had a parallel alternative science ministry. Um, I won't call it alternative science, it's an alternative therapy system. Mm. Some of it is good, some of it's bad. Um, but the importance and the focus of it was shifted very quickly uh, away from the, uh, from the, from the evidence-based science, and that kind of really motivated me to start this. So the, here so we are, a couple years are. later. Yeah, we, we've still been doing that. 
Um, and uh, our, our team is growing now. So, um, yeah, we'll, um, that's what we do. <laughs> Fantastic. And I'm, we, we did talk at length last time we spoke about Orc New Science and the importance of it. And of course, back then, Patanjali had just launched or, and then quickly withdrawn its uh, so-called COVID cure. Um, and we did get into the weeds about that one. But now, of course, we've reached a whole new level of... Um, well, <laughs> I, I don't even have words to describe where this came from. But I really, uh, because, uh, because uh, Mr. Bhan was on NDTV. You were on NDTV recently, right? Yeah. On a panel discussion. Yes. Could either or both of you uh, just give us a little bit of an introduction as to what Ayurvedic surgery really is? and where it's been hiding all these years. Yeah, sure. Okay, so again, I'm not an expert on Ayurvedic surgery. Uh, I'm also not, I'm not trained in Ayurish um, as a discipline either, but uh, you know, whether we like it or not, and I, I know there are many people who have varying level of uh, opinions on this. Um, Ayush by itself has recognized systems of medicine legally in India. So you have Ayurveda, Yunani, Siddha, Homeopathy, all of them having standard systems of medicine, medical colleges where these um, sciences are taught. And, uh, you know, you have graduates who go through the grind in the way MBBS graduates go through. Um, the Ayurveda course is also a five and a half year course, the undergrad course. So that's the Bachelor's of Ayurvedic Medicine and Surgery, BAMS. And then you have a post-graduation, just as uh, you have post-graduate degrees for uh, allopathic medicine. And in this case, they have the equivalent of, if I may say, um, the MS, um, which we have for surgical sciences and allopathy. And that is these two... Um, disciplines that we're talking about, uh, Shalya and Shakalya, and also actually another one which is more um, similar to uh, Opsk uh, and Gaini. Um, so that's, um, I, uh, you know, I think it's called Prasuti Tantra, which uh, basically oh. with uh, women's um, health and uh, obstetrics. Mm -hmm. So that I don't think has been discussed so far in this notification. This notification seems to primarily revolve around Shalya and Shakalya Tantra, and uh, those are primarily general surgery, um, orthopedic surgery, ENT, head and neck, and dentistry, sort of the equivalent in, uh, in Ayurveda. Mm -hmm. Now, these courses have been going on, as you were alluding to, for many years, and apparently these surgeries have also been going on for many years, at least in some institutions. It seems to be the case that not every Ayurvedic medical college um, does the, uh, have surgery departments, but some of the older ones and the larger ones do have them, both in the public and private sector. And um, it's indeed the case that uh, surgeries are happening. Now, are they actually following, uh, you know, systems of uh, surgical practice which only derive from Ayurveda? Or are they actually mixing uh, Ayurveda and, and the science of Ayurveda? as it stands with uh, allopathy is the mood question. And if that is happening, what kind of a mixopathy as uh, it's being often referred to, or kitchen as it's being referred to by <laughs> I. Yeah, uh, I've seen a lot of that on Twitter. And I don't think anyone knows because it seems to also vary across institutions. Um, it's yeah. been the most, um, I think most Irish practitioners who have worked in this don't seem to indicate that there is some 
element of involvement of allopathic surgeons um, in some kind of a supervisory role. And if that is happening, then clearly allopathic surgeons or allopathic um, anesthetists or um, allopathic obstetricians or gynecologists are providing some degree of mentorship or supervision and obviously are participating in this practice, which again brings it into that gray zone. The other fact is that many um, allopathic hospitals, uh, nursing homes, employ Ayurvedic graduates to run um, OPDs, to run ICUs, to run wards. So that is also the truth. So, I mean, those are the facts of the case. Um, and it seems to be legal as, as per current norms in India. Ah, okay. I did have a discussion with uh, Dr. Abhyankar, uh, Dr. Shantanu Abhyankar, a while back, who did give me a, a really interesting insight into uh, students of medicine who couldn't maybe get into a medical college initially, but then used the alt-med path in learning Ayurveda and uh, homeopathy to be able to get into at least small jobs in hospitals so they could at least start their career and kind of work their way up. So. That is something that um, that also opened my eyes to that situation, and then that has that is apparently the way things work in this country. But uh, the question really is now: is do these students have the uh, the the training to be able to do the kinds of surgery that they've been well allowed to do? At least the proposition has been sure. Um, so. Yes, it's indeed the case that there's certainly much more footfall in allopathic uh, hospitals in, and medical colleges. And it's also the case that there are many more surgeries happening in allopathic medical colleges and hospitals as compared to Ayurvedic ones. So, you know, if I were to be a surgeon or a provider of any ill, uh, you know, there's a few things which are there in the mix. One is obviously based training. And that includes the number of uh, you know patient interactions that you've had, the number of surgeries that you have done if you are training to be a surgeon. Um, so that's the training part of it. The second part is um, you know establishing that I have the competency. Once I've been trained or I've gone through a training period, then what is it that establishes me as being a professional who can independently conduct those kind of interventions, right? Because these are after all all invasive procedures. Uh, yeah. The third is um, ensuring that there is some way of providing oversight so that, you know, either you have a recertification program, you have an ongoing, um, you know, professional degree program of some kind, which ensures that over time, one, I am absorbing new knowledge, new ways of doing things better, and also mm -hmm. that I'm retaining my skills. And finally, I think the most important thing is what kind of patient outcomes are you seeing? You know, are, am I able to uh, operate safely? And are patients getting better, or am I am I a risk factor? You know, because after all, it's mm -hmm. a skill set as well, and not everyone is a good surgeon, even if you're training to become a surgeon. So you also need to look at patient outcomes, and I think it's that this mix of factors which should define who is allowed to practice or not, and there should be a transparent way of being able to capture all of that. And as a patient, I have a right to know that you know if if I'm going to a surgeon. In what discipline is he or she trained? How long have they been trained for? What kind of um, expertise do they have? What kind of, uh, you know, an intervention are they going to do? And what mm. evidence is that um, building on? And finally, you know, what has been the kind of patient outcomes with that particular surgeon? 
uh, and I have a right as a patient to be having access to all of that information. Do patients have that information? Maybe some of them do, but most don't. And um, as a patient who might not have access to some of these finer details of uh, and being able to discern, then you know, if I go to a surgeon and that person says I'm a surgeon, I might not ask the right question. So will a, will a patient going to a rural hospital know some of these things and will that person be able to for example, question the surgeon and say, in what form of medicine did you get trained and etc. Likely not. So that, that I think not. an informational uh, inequity issue which we need to worry about. And, but these, uh, these uh, students, do they actually have that, that rigor of training? And how, is there any evidence to support whether, they, whether their outcomes are actually good? What kind, I mean, we know, okay, so some of them do go through this training, but how reliable is that? And have there any studies been, has any studies been done to understand how adept they are? Um, so from knowledge, there hasn't been any studies done in medical education in that department. But if you're talking about, um, I mean, even medical education, the way that the course is delivered. So I have taught um, medical students um, in Sydney where I used to do my PhD. And uh, there is a process, uh, and it's also an evidence-based process through which these medical students are taught these courses. For example, one of the things uh, for the medical students is problem-based learning, uh, where you have been presented a case and they go through bit by bit um, in terms of diagnostics, like what are the symptoms, what's presentation, and go through, you know, differential diagnosis all the way until the end to find out what exactly happens and, you know, how the patient should be treated, et cetera, et cetera. And through that process, they learn everything from anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, pathophysiology, you know, clinical education, every single thing. And, um, this this process has been documented, studied in an evidence-based form um, by researchers who only research um, medical education and uh, you know the you know how students learn these issues and what is to, to what extent do we apply this type of uh, practice um, uh, to to allow them to you know learn better, ask them better, and apply them um, uh, their clinical life. So these these studies has not been done. Um, I mean, they they've been doing uh, as uh, they've been doing some of these things for a really long time. A lot of alternative practitioners have been already practicing um, evidence-based medicine, but is that because of their evidence-based medicine training, or because they've established some, you know? In an ad hoc way, they've established some protocols that um, you do this or you do that for a certain uh, symptom. For example, uh, antibiotics are being um, administered very frequently by people who don't understand um, how, you know, the differences between, say, gram-positive, gram-negative, and, you know, how, what are some of the things that apply to uh, different infections, um, and then that thereby increasing uh, the rate at which resistance is produced in the community. Um, so some of these problems have already been existing. It's just that they haven't been studied properly. Um, one, they haven't uh, been... Uh, my main problem with this is actually factfulness in general, um, evidence in general. Um, I remember I remember, I was uh, on a TV program with uh, um, one of the uh, department, uh, you know, Ayurveda department at the time of Tantalit Police. And um, uh, the, one of the professors there, she was debating about how proteins can be modulated uh, in, um, you know, up or down, so up 
regulated or downregulated, which means that you can make cells to um, or cause genes to like express those proteins um, in an upwardly fashion or, or downwardly fashion, depending mm-hmm. on what your body requires based on a certain set of Ayurvedic drugs. Um, and this, that, you know, that's not how physiology works in, in the way that they were talking about. They had absolutely no understanding of the molecular mechanisms um, of, uh, you know, the molecular physiology or, or pharmacology, you know, the, the drug receptors and targets. Um, you know, even now, uh, a lot of these Ayurvedic practices do go back to centuries-old ideas about um, uh, things like diabetes, for example. You know, they, they, yes, they, they've known it way earlier um, than any other practitioners of um, medicine that uh, we have an increased level of sugar in our blood or urine in type 2 diabetes. But the cure to that they've been performing till to this date is giving um, uh, the opposite of the sweet taste, which is something bitter. Uh, and the bitter god and some of those things are being incorporated um, without understanding how insulin um, and pancreas and some of these uh, interactions work. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about that, but some of these uh, things work uh, in relation to diabetes and, you know, what are sort of some of the enzymes required and, uh, you know, the hormones and things like that. So um, I, I don't think they have any understanding um, the basics that you need. And that's, that's what forms the, the formative years of medical education, the first, first, uh, you know, second, third years of medical education where you really understand, you know, molecular mechanisms, basic sciences. It's not actually clinical sciences at that point in time. We're learning things like Krebs cycle and, you know, um, uh, genes and proteins and how they work and stuff like that. Um, and, and I have done a thorough review of some of these papers that come out, the research papers that um, uh, people like homeopaths publish, people like the Ayurveda uh, in India uh, and dean of uh, some of the homeopathic colleges have published um, who who try to allude that uh, there are homeopathic drugs that actually uh, switch the nature of our genes, um, you know, and in such a way wow. that they cause our immunity. I mean, it is very much like, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to use the word, but it does seem like very quackery-like uh, statements to make uh, that your yeah. DNA is going to change uh, by giving a certain set of drugs. So my problem is um, the, the general method that they follow, which is not an unbiased um, evidence-based methods. And if you read the papers of whatever, like take, pick, any, pick a drug that comes out, you read the papers, um, the, the evidence that is used largely is not based on what we call the gold standard of scientific research. And clinical mm-hmm. trials come way, way later. Um, we're talking about the, the you know, starting procedures. We, we talk about um, ex vivo and then we talk about in vivo and healthy participants, et cetera, et cetera. And we talk about the mechanisms to start with first. Um, none of these have that kind of pathway to show that, you know, where exactly is the drug working? You know, what are specific targets? Um, only now they've been trying to do a lot of the research into this. So it is so early to say that even if a herb is working, I'm not saying that none of this works. Maybe there is some evidence. But the claims that suggest that there's absolutely no um uh, negative outcome or like side effects, as they call them, uh, with uh, with a hundred percent benefits and things like saying things like you will remove the um, disease from the root, um, and all all those 
uh, higher claims that are nearly impossible to make. I think my problem is with those aspects of um, uh, the practice and then allowing them to engage in something that is so deeply rooted in evidence. Um, it, it, that becomes a problem because we have to really rely on calculated, like, say, for, for example, you know, anesthesia or a, any pharmacology that you're, you're talking about. We, we have to really be uh, calculative in terms of how much to administer based on the weight and based on the person. And it's not about just churning a few things in your pot and making um, balls out of herbs and giving it to patients. Because, you know, what what, what we're talking about is isolating the active compound. Uh, for example, curcumin, which is which is a part of the turmeric, uh, which is the active compound of mm -hmm. the turmeric. So you give a specific amount of uh, curcumin to have uh, some sort of an anti-inflammatory effect. Now, that does work. And turmeric does have those properties. But in what extent? And studies have been shown that Turmeric in that in a, in a large quantity does not produce enough curcumin in our body to have the effect of what we call anti-inflammation. And if you do give purified curcumin to somebody, there are large side effects on liver and other processes, uh, specifically mm -hmm. metabolic um, uh, side effects uh, that we do not want. So my problem is those claims and exaggeration of, of the claims. Um, the second thing of this is uh, the the effect of of this on the the general uh, understanding of how evidence-based science is perceived. Now, if you raise the bar so high, um, where the the research is uh, and and the clinical practice is largely focused on removing a certain illness completely, mm -hmm. um, which is which is next to impossible. Which is you know you can never have that. Um, for example, in diabetes, in type two diabetes, you always have to manage a problem. Um, you know, you, you're not going to be able to get rid of it completely. So so the way you perceive medicine and then the cost associated with it is completely changed. So you're creating a yeah. population where um, people don't understand how do you, what to expect from medicine anymore. Um, you don't understand the, the scientific process of it. And then uh, having them say as um, this type of medical system is acceptable more than the other types of medical system, uh, it goes into a negative cycle where more and more people are saying, yes, let's go to the other guys who are promising us good um, outcomes, who are saying there are going to be no side effects, and they're saying that, you know, we're going to remove it from the root. And, and on top of that, of course, it, it is way cheaper than um, than, than to go uh, to, to a regular uh, physician. Uh, so so th those sort of things are, you know, in, in combining uh, the problems with their factfulness and their lack of understanding um, in, in, in creating the blunders that they created when it comes to uh, microbial resistance and other things, and then formalizing that, I think that becomes a huge problem. I'm not saying that those things don't have value. My no. problem is having them incorporated into a public health system where the taxpayer money is, is thrown at um, achieving something that is next to impossible uh, within that system. I think they need to go a lot more in research to establish what they want to establish to to find out what they're what they're after, and then maybe then they, they could become the evidence-based practitioners themselves. But Absolutely. until then, until, till that is established, uh, I think we have a long way to go. And having surgeries 
specifically, uh, like Anand pointed out, uh, how are you going to achieve anesthesia in dentistry when the belief system is deeply rooted, going against, um, you know, going against what they call allopathy, what we call evidence-based medication? They have to administer some sort of sodium channel blockers. Do they understand what sodium channel blockers are? Do they understand how do they work? Or calcium channels or potassium channels and what they do in our in your cells to produce that anesthetic effect to block those nerve signals. You under, mm. if, if they don't understand the basis of how you get rid of pain, you know, and then it's impossible for them to create, uh, you know, to, to participate in surgeries um, that, that use that processes, that require those processes. Sure, you can say there will be an anesthetist and they'll look after it. Um, but, but I think we're really digging ourselves a deeper hole than what we're already into. Yeah, I, I know. I, thanks, for, uh, thanks for your insight. I, I, this, I mean, yes, the whole idea of Ayurveda up till now has been very non-evidence-based. I mean, people, they don't believe in, you know, basic things. Or I mean, I'm sure they believe in things like germ theory, but that is not exactly how they're creating their preparations. That is not the insight that they're using to create the Ayurvedic preparation. This, is all, this has all become dogmatic that's been handed down for generations and through the textbooks and through the schools and colleges. But, and we are talking about Vata, Pita, Kapha and, you know, and these are the, and the imbalances that cause disease when at least in modern science, I mean, if you might, if you want to think about that from a more spiritual perspective, fine. But when you're talking about a person's health, a person's, um, I mean, it could even be matters of life and death we have to understand the root causes. And as much as alternative practitioners like to say that you are not, that modern medicine doesn't tackle root causes, it only tackles symptoms. And it seems to me that it's exactly the other way around. A lot of homeopaths and Ayurvedas focus on the symptoms that you have before prescribing their medicines and you know giving you a diagnosis, while as modern, modern medicine tries to find the root cause. And surgery is one of those processes that tries to get to the root cause or the root problem and solve that from inside, from an invasive, through an invasive procedure. So it's, um, it's extremely troubling. Like, okay, fine, you're giving herbs, et cetera, et cetera. Some of them could be harmful. Some of them might not be harmful. But then the government is now proposing to put the scalpel in the hand of a person who might not, there's a chance they might not have had a rigorous enough training to be, to know where to put the scalpel, to know the vital signs and to understand where the root causes to make the incision in the right place and actually do the surgery accurately. Unless they go through the full regime of training that a surgeon goes through, I find it extremely like, I mean, yeah, I can, I can pop a pill. I wouldn't mind if somebody says you have to have this. I've had surgeons, regular allopathic surgeons who have recommended I have turmeric to reduce inflammation, um, which I can pop because I know that nothing much is going to happen from that. I'm not, 
I'm not going to have such large quantities that is going to affect me in any other harmful way. I can do that. But the surgery itself is so invasive. It makes me extremely nervous to know there might be, um, there might be now uh, people out there who might not have had the thorough training and are going to be performing certain surgeries. But do you think, do either of you think that there is any form of surgery, like they have basically said general surgery, ENT, ophthalmology, ortho and dental procedures, which they are proposing that Ayurvedic practitioners can now start taking up. But are there any procedures do you think that might actually have a possibility of being conducted accurately and with the standards of care required? I mean, something like dental procedures may be it doesn't seem that scary to me, at least, as a layperson. But Dr. Bahan, uh, would you, Mr. Bahan, <laughs> would you like to comment on any, are there any of these surgeries do you think would be an easier entry point for these practitioners to get through, get into surgery from, or is everything off the table? What do you think? Yeah, so I think there's a certain science to everything, right? And whether it's a minor surgical procedure, a major surgical procedure, whether it's a dental procedure, whether it's a non-dental procedure, I think at the end of the day, what is important is what is the evidence base? Are you sure that you've had enough uh, experience doing those procedures? What are the kind of patient outcomes? Is it something where there has been an evolution of knowledge so that, you know, you're doing things better? If you are doing something which was the norm 2000. 3,000 years ago, then how are you incorporating newer knowledge about that organ system, about a safer way of doing things, what to have as an add-on, what to not have as an add-on. So all of those are things you would expect of any science, and especially so of, um, of uh, medical science where there is an invasive element to it. So, um, it's likely that the current practice which is happening has amalgamated into it a lot of allopathic components, whether that be anesthesiology, whether that be the use of antibiotics, whether that is the techniques. And that is where I guess there is confusion, right? That, you know, is this really uh, a pure form of a science? And, you know, we might disagree on what science means in that particular context, but at least based on some kind of a standardized way of doing things. Or is it just a a mix of various things and we just don't know whether that is standardized or not you know for example are they doing things by the book or have they added on elements as part of their practice from allopathy and finally what you're getting is actually a mix of things um, which no one has a reasonable level of confidence about that you know is that the right mix of things for a safe patient outcome so i think in the interest of of protecting patient safety, uh, we need clarity on that. And that is the role of a regulator. That is the governance role which the government has to play. And uh, by just listing out procedures, but not all delving into those issues is where I think we've had a bit of a regulatory failure or a major regulatory failure, because I don't think we have clarity. What we just now have is a list of permissible um, procedures, which uh, graduates of these two disciplines can do. But, is that based on sound science and uh, and an understanding of what should be required for someone to be allowed to do surgery of that kind is still unclear to me. And I think that's where a lot of the differences. That having been said, I don't think we have perfection in allopathy either. I mean, I think uh, if you look at the way allopathic surgery or allopathic 
uh, training is happening now, even though there is some degree of standardization, you know, I think there's still a lot to be desired in terms of ensuring competency and ensuring that graduates, both at the MBBS level and the postgraduate level, are actually trained enough uh, rigorously and evaluated prior to be allowing allowed to uh, do independent surgery, for example. And do they get those opportunities? Is that something which is um, systematically documented and provided um, and registered? Um, and uh, and there's data available. Probably depends very much on where you get trained: a government college, a private college, with kind of what kind of patient drainage, how many procedures, etc. So I think there's certainly more need for discernment even at that level. But at least broadly within these two areas, um, I, I think we are in a situation now where probably. Um, there is a lot of confusion and a lot of gray zones being created uh, more than earlier. And that is certainly not good for patient health. For sure. I would. <laughs> uh, that's, that's absolutely very true. And uh, I, it, it's, it's surprising how a government can take this kind of a step without having any data to support it. But of course, I mean, <laughs> We have seen before about a lot of steps that they've taken in other fields where there's been absolutely no data to support any of their decisions. Just one more thing. Um, it seems more of a yeah, dogmatic sorry. decision than anything else. Uh, sorry, one more thing I'd like to add. I totally agree with Anand here, but uh, um, increasingly we've been seeing that um, you know uh, there's a regulatory problem in the process. But I I see it as as a, a process where they're unable to identify, um, you know, the, the, they unable they want to keep up with uh, the establishment wants to keep up with a lot of um, the research that is happening um, at that scale um, on the evidence based side, and they are introducing a lot of measures um, to uh, to get uh, the alternative practitioners to do research. Um, in accordance with uh, the practices of the gold standard science that there is that has been created, um, but there's just there's an, uh, the lack of you know there's a, uh, there's a disparity where those two things are colliding. I think instead of uh, adding regulation to the clinical practice and, and the practicing front, they should be adding uh, regulatory measures at the very start of the process where um, these people have been getting training. So instead of having um, um, a regular medical degree where you've got um, all your you know, evidence-based science or the regular science that we talk about, and then you have these other courses, uh, perhaps we could have a, 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 a design, uh, you know, a course where you have the old regular uh, the evidence-based science that we see in an, in an any MD course or in India called MBBS. Majority of the people outside of India don't actually do an MBBS generally an MD with a medical science degree. So most of these people um, should have, say, like an add-on module uh, during their formative years to uh, really see in a very unbiased way what these other alternative procedures are and allow them to see it from a historical perspective and, you know, through that context. And say, uh, when I studied these things, I understood that historically these some of these branches were uh, very radical and actually very progressive uh, for that particular period. Um, but as time passed, they kind of stagnated in terms of what their science could be. And and to, to suggest that 
for example, and particularly homeopathy, that, that uh, you know, Heinemann back then, 300 years ago, when we didn't understand um, any of, uh, you know, how the bacteria and virus work and, and a lot of the other things in general, and the majority of medical science has been civilization rather, not just medical science. Civilization is, is the last 100 years. Um, so 300 years ago, um, to have a complete system of medical established in such a way that we do not need any more progress um, in the system. I think that is a flawed theory. But allow them to have another module to look at these in an unbiased way to study them and then compare it. Let them compare it with what they are practicing. And then if eventually, uh, uh, you know, give them resources to develop some of those practices uh, in their clinical years and probably in their research as well. And then if, if, if a person um, is, for example, taking an Ayurvedic add-on module with their MBBS degree or MD degree, and then they wanted to research a particular herb, which a lot of people do. A lot of the Western scientists do research um, herbs, different forms of herbs, just as an add-on treatment. I mean, I, I remember there was, um, you know, with tamoxifen and things like that, they were adding Chinese herbs uh, in Australia to improve uh, the, the course of the treatment. And there are a lot of things that you could add. So they were not actually called alternative medicine, but complementary medicine. So uh, instead of saying that you have two choices, either this or that, uh, you can perhaps mix a couple of things and to provide a better result, if that is the case. I, I, I don't know to what extent that could depend on, on um, you know, individual um, so, so, so systems, but to allow them to come to a point where they've established their research training, they've established the medical science training, and then they're taking the, on the, the herbs or the, 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 the more uh, traditional treatments from their uh, understanding of what uh, real science is. And I think that is a better way of uh, conducting things instead mm -hmm. of taking it all the way to the clinical side and then merging uh, the two complete different ideologies, I would say, because uh, from what I remember, uh, they, they actually uh, talk down each other, uh, uh, whether it's homeopathy or Ayurveda or or our evidence-based practices. A lot of them don't uh, don't agree fundamentally, uh, not not as uh, you know as, as people groups. I would say in in the theory, they, they don't agree with each other, and and I think the easier way to blend them together is to introduce them early on and then allow them to see what what it is for yourself. And the second thing, I think, as very correctly uh, Anand pointed out, pointed out that um, there are so many problems with our existing medical system, which needs to be fixed. And one of the biggest problems that I see is not just, you know, the, the regulation and, and uh, you know, the training and, and the things that we are doing um, within the practice, but also how the, the funding works around these things. You know, a lot of these things are privatized to a huge extent, and I mean, uh, you, you see how America uh, America is, and in particular how COVID was tackled there, and you know, people's access to uh, healthcare system was really questioned um, in, in a pandemic like this, where everybody needs healthcare, regardless of you know whether you can afford it mm -hmm. or not. Um, it really questions the existence of large-scale privatized. Um, uh, health, uh, you know, uh, departments where, where you most, more often than not, you go to a private system instead of going to the public system. Um, I mean, we, we have 
great things like NHS to compare with. Australia has a great system. Where I live in Sweden, in Scandinavia in general, we have a great public health system. So um, banning is never a solution. You know, if you ban something, they come out in a bigger force. Uh, which is which is becomes a bit more radical, like which becomes almost like an ideology that they want to fight for. So allow them to have their practices in a private system, not get funded through the public system, and have the general medicine that you know, as a universal health, what we call. So the entire medical system merge into something like what the NHS is into the public system. And by doing that, the one of the biggest challenges with um, uh, towards the evidence-based medical or medicine or what you guys call allopathy is that uh, the, the people are only there to make money like the doctor's interest is primarily with how much how much they make and uh, evidence-based people push patients into spending as much as possible without under without the realization that you know, they may not be able to afford it, and that's why they get driven towards these cheaper alternatives. But if everything becomes public, it's just the, the whether it's the nurse or the the consultant or the surgeon or the junior medical officer there, what they're doing is just doing a job, and they get salary, and that's all they're doing. It doesn't matter for them personally how, in, in, in what way they treat. It does matter. They want to, everybody just focusing on good outcomes good um, clinical outcome for the patient and nothing else. They, they, they're not focusing on the profits. And by doing that, you change the way the medicine is perceived. Because if I go to a doctor or if I go to a second doctor the day after, I know that they, they will not, there will be diverging opinions on how, you know, somewhat diverging opinions on how it's been treated. But they would not want to give me a different um, option that, should not be available to me. Surgery for simple ear infection, for example, just a basic example. Um, yeah, exactly. It should not be there for me to decide that do I want to do this or not because I don't know it better. The doctor knows better. So a public health mm -hmm. system kind of eliminates that viewpoint and uh, eliminates the need for uh, anybody to go to an alternative system. And if they do want to go there, despite that, sure, go through a private uh, route and and uh, leave this only for public, um, uh, leave the evidence-based care only for public medicine and nothing else. The second problem with this is that if if if, he, if government is funding things like homeopathy, and and I I would not say Ayurveda has problem with evidence and facts in the same way. No, Ayurveda is a much advanced, you know, uh, 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 I wouldn't say science, but practice in general because a lot of the medicine gets derived from herbs and stuff like that. They just haven't like formalized it in 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 the way that it, they should be. And there are some problems. And it actually has exactly. stuff in it but with homeopathy, as compared nothing. to homeopathy, which it's has nothing in it. Like a millionth yeah. dilution of, a, of something that that could not even be there. You know, it's like a droplet in a sea. And and if you treat people with those practices, those systems of medicine, like homeopathy, and other there are other things as well. You know, curing cancer through yoga and stuff like that. And Yunani as well has, has so many you know problems. So if you if you treat um, them with homeopathy. Ten years later, they're very likely mm. that a pain, a back, lower back pain, for example, you know, a lot of people have it very common. Um, um, lower back yeah. pain can become a lot more chronic. And then they come back ten years later with a bigger complication, which is another burden on the public health system. 
So having all these therapies in public health mm-hmm. actually increases the burden on the system. What you want to be achieving is that... And we have an overstrained yeah, system as it is. is that the patient should be coming to the doctor as little as possible. And at first point of contact, you should be making sure that um, they don't keep coming back and you don't, you don't give them, uh, you know, short-term solutions in such a way. There, there should be incentives on the doctor spending more one-on-one time with patients instead of, you know, how many patients they can get through through the day because that, you know, will increase their salary or whatever take-home packages um, and, and things like that. So, so regardless of the doctor spending an hour or, or half an hour with the patient, um, what they what they get should be no different. The, the, the focus should be on the doctor treating the patient to get better clinical outcomes and nothing else. Um, so, and and we all know how many times, um, you know, a lot of, you know, everybody, rather not just evidence-based practitioners, but also alternative med- medical practitioners giving things like steroids, giving things just to make them feel better for a short period of time. Um, so, so there, there are problems in all aspects uh, of, of clinical practice and science, both and scientific research. And I think coming together instead of winning over, being a competitor over each other, I think that's a better solution. And this might be a good decision, having surgeries incorporated in, and I don't know which ones because I, I'm really clueless about which can be done. I, I feel they're all bad for them to pick up, but... This is not the, at the end where they should have reforms. The reforms should be at the very start of their medical training, where they have alternate alternate modules Absolutely. to learn before they go into clinical practice. So, Absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, and it, I can understand, uh, where, you know, when you mentioned, uh, you know, straining the medical infrastructure, of course. But uh, Mr. Bahan, we what is the situation in our medical infrastructure at this point of time? Is was this move motivated by the need for more surgical hands available? Uh, are we running a shortage? Is there any motivation to, from the ground realities of the shortcomings of the Indian medical infrastructure, or do you think this was motivated by something else? Yeah, so it's a bit unclear. I mean, um, what they've done is basically just sent out a notification with a list of surgeries, which apparently um, postgraduates who finish those two disciplines um, are trained in doing. It doesn't add on any additional human resources, right? So it's that existing resources. It doesn't also tell us what they aim to do with these professionals. Now, now remember this notification came from the Central Council of uh, Indian Medicine, CCIM, And, uh, you know, that's a separate branch, it's a separate ministry, as uh, Sumaya was saying, as compared to the health ministry. Um, So, you know, whether these individuals who finish their training will be deployed, etc., no clarity uh, and no no notification about that. Um, At the end of the the day, it doesn't really matter whether you're an urban patient or rural patient. Whichever part of India you are, you should be getting quality access to healthcare. And that access to healthcare should be evidence-based and it should be based um, on a petty or a form of uh, medical science where there is an absolute level of trust that it's a, you know, there is safety attached to it, there's efficacy, and that it is based um, on um, an evidence base which has accumulated over time. So 
does the government hope that these surgeons will be redeployed for some of that other scarcity of resources that we have? I don't know. But I hope that is not the case because I wouldn't want that to be indeed a way of making up a shortage of specialists, especially surgeons um, in say rural parts of India. I don't think this is the right solution for that. You might want to do it in different ways, like increasing the number of postgraduate seats by incentivizing practicing in rural area. There are multiple models which could work, but I don't think this is the right model. That having been said, you know there are many procedures for which you don't necessarily require specialists. Um, and I'm not talking about specifically surgery, but many forms of uh, healthcare can be delivered by um, you know non-specialists, um, by frontline health providers, by intermediary um, health professionals like community health officers um, who are mid-level providers. And that is a science which there is a lot of evidence for. So that is typically what is known as task sharing. And there have been many, many experiments across the world, including in India, on doing good quality task sharing, where there is uh, both training, oversight, and you know, demonstration of what is possible to do. So that we should certainly be seeing more of. And, and I think there's enough to draw from in terms of global evidence, which can be incorporated so that you don't need to go for every small thing to a specialist. So that first level care can be provided by a well-trained frontline provider. Um, so that the only those people who really need to should be getting a referral to go to a specialist. What actually happens in many cases in India is that even for a simple headache or a running nose or a cough, you end up going to a tertiary medical college hospital and crowding the OPD, right? Yeah. And, and, and as someone who's highly specialized and working in a medical college, why should I have to see patients who could be well handled by primary care or secondary care? And that is part of the problem with our system is that we have a very lopsided and dysfunctional referral system. And uh, you have patients of all kind crowding tertiary facilities, and which means that patients who probably really require um, tertiary level care have to often be waiting, or they might, uh, you know, be in line uh, waiting to get access to the provider, or the provider doesn't have enough time because they have to get through the OPD of three hundred people, you know, within those three or four or five hours that they have available. So on on patients where they should be spending more time, they don't just have that capacity uh, and time availability and that is something we need to worry about so that that's why i think we need the whole system to be reformed in a way that it's structured it follows evidence there is also it's also working right from prevention promotion access to healthcare, and defining very clearly what needs to be handled at every level um, and that is the case in many health systems unless you actually have gone through a gp and that person has certified that you actually need to go to the next level care you will not be allowed to go to the next level care and the system mm -hmm. wouldn't enable that. And maybe that is something that we need to be looking at, but only when that level of care at the primary or secondary level is working, because you don't want people to be stuck there and not getting care just because there are no providers available. So I think at the end of the day, we need more resources. We need infrastructure. We need human resources. We need better staffing. And if anything, this pandemic also tells us the same thing, that we have uh, huge shortages of human resources. We have infrastructure issues. And we don't have the resilience in the health system, which would have enabled us to cope up better as compared to what we've seen. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. But thank you. I think this conversation has added a lot of nuance to something I started off thinking was very black and white. I thought, no, absolutely, you know, no Ayurvedic practitioner should be allowed to get near a patient to perform surgery. But there is, they do get a certain amount of training. They do get a certain amount of standard of uh, training and standards of care, at least. 
if not, you know, actual basic procedures. But so, but considering all of this and the nuance that we've added to the conversation, do you think that the protests from the, uh, you know, by the IMA, uh, is that justified, do you think? Or should the protests be more about reforming the entire infrastructure? Or was it misplaced or was it justified? Mr. Khan? Yeah, so I think a lot of the protests often are about protect, uh, protecting your own turf, right? And, um, you know, I'm wanting to say that, you know, as the IMA, we are sort of the representatives for allopaths and, uh, you know, how dare Ayurveds come and do surgery. But, you know, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting storyline, but it doesn't really talk about the real problem in healthcare. Mm. And that's part of the positioning that we see. Um, that you don't talk about what are the structural issues, what are the health system issues, what are the deficiencies, um, and what needs to be done to fix that. And you also don't acknowledge what are the problems with current practice of allopathic medicine as well. You know, it's quite probably the case that many IMA practitioners have nursing homes or hospitals which employ Irish graduates, and um, and that that's that's routine practice. And uh, so, if you're really going to protest mixopathy then you will have to also protest against all of your colleagues who are running hospitals, which employ Irish graduates. Are you really going to? So, I mean, so I, I think, uh, you know, again, it's their decision that they want to protest, but one gets this feeling that obviously, um, you know, rather than focusing on the real issue, sometimes the positioning becomes X-pathy versus Y-pathy and not really the real, um, the substantive issues that we should be discussing. And, you know, this debate too shall pass. I think there'll be something else which comes through. But at the end of the day, will we see reform? And uh, due to this protest, I, I have my doubts. I mean, not a competition. Well, I... Yeah, yeah sorry. Carry on. It's not a competition, I said. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it has to come down to, you know, what we can create as a result of that. And um, we haven't been focusing enough on, um, you know, changing the infrastructure or changing the way COVID has been handled in India. I mean, we all know that there are huge issues with uh, mm. what is happening um, hospital queues, um, missing infrastructure and beds and all sorts of things. And we haven't really looked at how these things can be managed. And the focus right now from the IMA has become about um, you know, not allowing surgeries uh, by Ayurveda, but why aren't people, regular people who have very little access to medicine, uh, or not just proper medicine, any any advice or um, health care, rather not just medicine, health care in general, or even a practicing nurse. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure to what extent that India does, uh, as uh, you know, as pointed out, there are frontline officers that uh, can provide uh, things that the, the specialist or the regular physician doesn't need to intervene. Uh, we have a lot of practicing mm -hmm. nurses and uh, senior nurses who know and understand and have a, a lot more experiences compared to junior medical officers. And th th those type of people are what we really need. You go through an intensive training as a nurse and um, eventually you become uh, at, at, a, at, a, at a, you know, come to a seniority level which uh, is, uh, you know, almost as com comparable to, to a lot of the practitioners um, uh, uh, in the system. So th those, again, can be only done with a centralized uh, system provided by the government, so a medical system provided by the government. But, uh, you know, what, what we're really lacking is why aren't people who, who are dying because of mismanagement? or have suffered because of mismanagement, because of mismanagement 
of the private hospitals or the government hospitals and the way that it's been handled. Yes, we're going through a crisis, but we could have done better in in the in the period where lockdown was imposed because in other countries lockdown was to um, uh, inflate resources and make sure that we we did not run out of beds. Uh, we had more than 131 beds um, increase from um, I think only six or so. Um, and even though at the worst time of after summer um, there were a lot of uh, um, patients admitted, but in the ICU there were only about four to five uh, patients admitted because we were living in a very small town. And every you know you can compare that uh, India large and very populous uh, compared to Sweden. Uh, sure, but you know the scale of things are also why are people on the streets because of ill practice or mismanagement, you know, or lack of healthcare in general. Like why are why is just the IMA protesting about um, surgeries? You know, why aren't regular people who are not able to get good healthcare on the street asking for universal public care? You know, as they should be. Uh, and, and, and I think Absolutely. That, that, that's where the, the, the focus should be, and that's what we should learn from the pandemic, rather, um, and sort of focusing mm. on competitions like uh, you know, you were Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. In fact, I think I think the Indian medical infrastructure has a long way to go to be robust and uh, to be able to provide for all the citizens. Um, in fact, a, a few months ago, I think early, early this year, I was working on a project for um, the ICMR and we were talking about, we were trying to get, I was trying to find out more about um, affordable healthcare kits. And so I was talking to a lot of people in, you know, in the government medical infrastructure and people who are, uh, you know, making uh, diagnostic kits and trying to reach rural uh, areas, and it was actually quite surprising to me that it that, uh, that there are so so such remote areas in the country that it is extremely hard for even the government to get any sort of medical infrastructure diagnostic systems um, to those far reaches. But the good thing is, at least there there are lots of initiatives. There are competitions where these uh, systems are being developed. The, the, the need is there, the need is recognized, and the government is promoting um, competitions and you know private players to innovate and create new uh, devices to help out in these ways. So at least in some ways, we are kind of heading in the right direction. Personally, I feel that this might be a move with the right intent for the government. I don't think it's at the right time and it is definitely not being conducted in the right way. I think we have a long way to go before we can get to a place where, uh, you know, these kinds of decisions can be made, but, uh, but thank you very much for clearing that up. I think we've added a lot of, a lot of clarity to, uh, you know, a lot of the conversations that's been happening out there. A lot of people think that this is just purely political. Anybody who's opposing mixopathy is just a liberal and anyone who's promoting it is just a bhakt. And it's, I've had some really strange conversations about this recently. And even on Twitter, where everything, I, I don't even know how upper caste, lower caste has suddenly popped into the conversation. But either way, um, 
I think, uh, well, we, I've put it out for questions. So anybody who's watching who has any questions, please let us know right now. Um, in the meantime, I think I will be also doing a little bit of research on this. I should be able to write a piece. I have got um, an Ayurvedic practitioner who might also be speaking on this topic really soon. So I'll let you guys know when that pops up. And uh, But thank you both for your time. Thank you both for the clarity that you have provided. As always, this is not black and white. This is many shades of gray. And even though there are lots of things that our government should be focusing on, and I think evidence-based medicine and research into Ayurveda and its, and its practices, proper randomized controlled trials, rigorous scientific research to find molecules that actually work. I think we, are, we as a country are at a prime place and a position to be able to start that kind of research and kind of lead it forward to understand what works and what doesn't, whether it's surgery, whether it's Ayurvedic preparations. I think we, that is something that we as a country, as a government, I think we, that is something that we should be promoting. We have the access to the practitioners. We have access to the, all the herbs, all the preparations, all the texts to be able to really dig into it and take normal modern medicine further to see compounds that might actually do things that we didn't think we had solutions for to be able to solve problems that we didn't think we had solutions for. But unfortunately, uh, as with this, as it is with a lot of Ayurvedic practitioners and even some people in our government, it's just, it's more about dogma and, you know, taking forward ideologies rather than pushing the entire field forward. Anyway, that's, that's my two bits. Uh, just as a, just to wrap things up, uh, just like to ask both of you, is there something that we can do as individuals to, uh, to take forward the initiatives that should be taken forward to tell the government that we need to strengthen our infrastructure, we need more evidence-based medicine. We, if there are alternative practitioners going in to do surgeries, then they, we should ensure that their training is complete and that they have the training that they need to be able to conduct the surgeries that they do. And of course, the same goes for doctors, et cetera. But um, do any do either of you have any, any comments on how lay people can just kind of push the ball in the right direction and maybe get our voices heard? Um, Dr. Sheikh, so, maybe? Um, I think uh, to be more informed, rather, you know, uh, I, a lot of people say that don't Google your symptoms before you go to the doctor, this and that. But understand, you know, have at least some background or some understanding of how these things um, work and, 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 and what, what can cause some of these things. And Google probably is not the best. Uh, you know, way to go, but have a lot of questions when you, at least, you know, maybe you don't understand everything when you read. Um, not everybody has the, the, the capacity to to um, get everything that, that a textbook is writing or, or an article is writing. So have, have a lot of questions ready. Um, read up a little bit about it and, you know, some of the things that that can cause some of the symptoms that they're experiencing and go to a doctor with a lot of questions. That is your primary healthcare provider, your, um, your physician, a general physician. Um, and then let the general physician decide where the next step should be. If that problem needs to be resolved at that particular point in time, 
great. If that physician decides to um, allow you to go to a um, a specialist, that's what uh, the route needs to be. So don't go don't walk up to a specialist right away. Um, you know, and also don't ex- like healthcare should be. Um, a right, you know, it just just like just like you know, you expect healthcare to to keep the overall health of the country to a certain state. It is not a service uh, that you get in return for money. I think the 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 understanding of places, you know, people like uh, Indians in particular, India is. Um, that healthcare is a service that I'm paying for. So any, if I pay something mm. better or a higher mark, I should be able to get better healthcare. But I think that's the notion that needs to be um, kind of challenged in such a way that we don't believe that better healthcare only comes with better money. Um, so you know, it, it should be a a competent doctor who gives you that kind of healthcare, and the the disease or the problem that you're facing kind of determines the outcome of um, of what your you know prognosis is going to be like, and you know what you end up with. So uh, not throwing more money at the physician or at the hospital. Yes, maybe a little bit of comfort might increase a better bed, um, but the but the health service is not going to uh, drastically change. So that's the notion that people should have. And then again, I, I cannot emphasize mm-hmm. enough on public universal health care. I, I think this is one of the most important points that we've come uh, globally as, you know, during this pandemic that we need to have access for all health care um, where not a single person, you know, I, I think uh, one of the ministers also um, made a statement that not everybody will be able to get a vaccine, uh, at least initially, or I would hope everybody would be able to get. And why is this a matter of debate in the first place? Um, this should be the most important thing that we do. Get everyone out of um, the pandemic, like whether they can afford it or not. Um, they should be able to get vaccine for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, if not, then everything else that we're doing is useless. It's practically useless. We're just trying to create bubbles of um, uh, uh, you know, of, of pockets of people or communities where uh, some can afford it and they would not get infected. So we have to also remember that people understand how these systems work, people understand how sciences work, and that should be taught through um, largely education, going all the way from schools to, you know, eventually, in, you know, focusing those things on uh, media and, you know, national television and things like that. I mean, we, here in Sweden, we have an, uh, an entire section of newspapers dedicated just for science and the achievements of science and how the processes work. So, and like interview and having scientists in the mainstream, I mean, this is the only time that I've seen any scientists in the mainstream in India, um, apart from the great works that our lovely physicists do at, in the space station and, and things like that. But biological scientists, there's very little input, um, um, you know, in, in, in the mainstream media. And also, the you know, the, the sure, the healthcare workers have um, a responsibility in educating, but also the the government has a responsibility in educating in return and, and I think that hasn't been done enough 
um, during this pandemic. And a lot of people, there's an there's a imbalance in how people have been receiving information. Some haven't been able to get access at all, um, yeah. specifically the rural areas, people don't have social media accounts, and even those who do have social media accounts, I've seen so many debates on how TB is much more deadly than this, or, you know, other infections are. And it's incomprehensible that... Yeah. The misinformation is rampant as well. Everything from WhatsApp and social media and to increase the confusion, of course, the Ministry of Ayush has also been putting out a lot of... I don't, I don't, I mean, definitely no, not helpful information. If I used to be, to be, to be honest, uh, I think it's a collective thing where we've been focusing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They have a, they have a part to play, but absolutely. it's not the I mean, only we, part. We are all also focused very much so on um, news or, or information that generates a larger amount of emotional responses. I mean, as a neuroscientist, this is how I um, the, analyze this situation where misinformation is rampant because it, it shocks you, it, it, it kind of shakes you, you know, that look, there is this cure in your kitchen mm. that the pharmaceutical industry is like trying to stop you from getting. They're trying to hide from you. So, so, so <laughs> we, we have a focus on something that drives emotion, that, that produces these, you know, cortisol, like, you know, stress hormones, and it gets you on the edge about something. So misinformation is very uh, rampant uh, during the time of the COVID, but it wasn't um, anywhere, um, you know, uh, we, we were out of it before that as well. Like, we, we were pretty much drowning in misinformation. It's just that the focus of uh, health-related misinformation now has uh, become something uh, to multiply. So I think the, 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 everything can do their, everybody can do their bit, and it's not just the citizens' responsibility. Uh, but I think ask lots of questions, ask the right amount of questions to the right type of people, and you know, and I say this many, many times. If something is too good to be true, it probably is. And this is like the model of of a yeah. lot of uh, the science and the health and the outcome that we expect from um, the, the medical sciences. If something is really too good to be true, it is too good to be true. Um, it is not real. And, and people yeah. should acknowledge that not everything can be solved with the pop of the pill. Um, um, and and you know, a, a little information can go a long way. So um, I, I think everybody's, you know, wrong in here and no one person in, instead of blaming each other. I think it's, it's a collective uh, role to play. Everybody has a collective role to play in um, advancing uh, the state of our sciences. Great. Thank you very much. And Mr. Bhan, any, uh, we've got a question of, uh, you know, how can we, uh, what can we do as citizens uh, in this country to be able to uh, ask for more evidence-based medicine and make sure that the government is doing things that is in the best interest of the public. And especially in this context of the whole hashtag mixopathy. Sure. So maybe just, you know, also to sort of wrap up, I think, um, you know, I, I think Samaya was on point, but just to also say that, you know, what we need from uh, the public is um, a, is a strong demand for more investment in science and health, um, unless health becomes and science becomes a political plank. And if anything, you know, this pandemic is a reason to do that, right? You know, we've all been demanding more investments in health and science, and we need that to actually happen. Otherwise, we will just have deflections and um, you know expenditure being on many other 
heads rather than actually those who count. So you know, social sector investment like health, education, science, etc. is what we need more of. And we need more and more of um, us to be able to absorb information in the correct way and ask the right questions of that information. So if you get a WhatsApp forward or see a Twitter post or a Facebook post, or if someone talks to you in the park as and when you can actually go, go and do it post the pandemic, that if they share information with you, you know what to accept and what to ask in terms of being discerning. And that is extremely important, I think, for all of us because um, it's becoming a challenge with more and more information coming. You know, So we have now more sources of information, but a large bulk of that is also misinformation. And that I think can be, um, you know, sometimes benign, but in other cases, quite risky. Uh, and we've seen that pan out um, already in many ways uh, during this pandemic. So I think we certainly need more scientific literacy and, uh, you know, work of platforms like yours where uh, we can help reinforce that, but also open debates. I think, you know, we were a society which was known for debates. And I think those spaces are becoming less and less uh, where people are sticking to, um, you know, a viewpoint, an ideology, uh, rather than engaging. You know, we might all end up not agreeing with each other 100%, but at least there is a space for us to engage and talk and try to understand other viewpoints and understand why, why they're saying what they're saying, rather than just labeling each other as certain kinds of people and just not refusing to, um, you know, even talk to each other. And I think that that as a society is something we need to worry about. If anything, scientific temper tells us is to be skeptical, but also to be open to other arguments and debates. And, and I think that's what we need more as a society. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And as rational, it's one of the things I try to promote the most is question things. You can disagree, but you can have a civil conversation which is also productive, one which you can both parties can learn both parties can discuss things in a civil, reasonable manner and just try and you, you might not want to change your mind, but somebody who's watching, somebody who's reading, they might change their mind, they, you know, on the basis of what is being spoken about. So, um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I hopefully I'm doing my part. <laughs> and and uh, both of you certainly are. So uh, in, you know, just to close off things, uh, Mr. Bhan, could you please uh, tell us where we can find you if the viewers uh, would like to ask you any questions or see what, you know, what work you're doing and, you know, have a conversation with you, where would they be able to find you? Sure, probably the best way to do it is on Twitter. I'm at Anand Bhan, that's A-N-A-N-T-B-H-A-N. And I'm happy to try to answer questions there as well as respond to any queries. Great. Thank you very much. And Dr. Sheikh, um, where can we find you? Email is probably better for me. Uh, so it's Sumaya, S-U-M-A-I-Y-A, my first name, at opens.in. Um, I'm also on Twitter at... Stay now. Sorry, that's my computer. I'm also on Twitter at Neurophysics, so neuro as in N-E-U-R-O, uh, physics with a P-H, P-H, um, y S I K. So, um, in in my country, in this country rather, in Sweden, um, uh, P H is replaced by S. So, just wanted to clarify that. You're, yeah. Just the so, um, uh, so yeah, I mean, email is probably the best way to find. Great, and of course, there's the the Ork News Science website, which uh, um, which we all know and love. All the work is important. 
Great. Thank you so much, uh, both of you, for joining us and for bringing a little clarity to this topic and kind of adding the grays to the black and white that is, that is always out there on social media. Um, this is the Rationable YouTube channel. I'm going to be putting this up on the Rationable podcast as well. And you can come to berationable.com to check out more content like this and more interviews with Dr. Sheikh as well, which we've had. We had one massive interview a couple of months back, which I had to break up into three different episodes because it was, and all of it was fascinating. So you guys have to check that out. Check out the Rationable podcast on whichever uh, podcast app that you like. And I will see you guys next time. Thank you both of you for joining us today. And all the best. Have a great week ahead and a weekend, hopefully. <laughs> and we'll see you later. Good night. Thank you, Abhijit. Take care. Bye. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Rationable Podcast with me, Abhijit. For the show notes, transcript, references, and further reading, visit www.berationable.com. Let's continue the conversation on the Rationable Conversations group on Facebook and at BeRational on Twitter. If social media is not your thing, you can also write to me at abhijit at berationable.com. If you enjoyed the episode, consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends and family. Until next time, be rational.